Hey everybody, welcome back to episode two of the Dissonance Podcast. I am Brennan Johnson. Uh, thank you for sticking around, following along on this weird journey from uh, YouTube videos to uh, Instagram TV to you know all the different mediums I I've been using and trying to use to to get this thing off the ground. And uh, here we are. Um, what was formerly the podcast known as the as Brennan Johnson Talks. I was told by many, many sources that that name I came up with in a fit of uh, urgency to, to get my, my talk into the social public sphere uh, was terrible. And so I figured uh, I would use the name The Dissonance Podcast. So really quick, I want to describe what this means, what this is, and what my hope is for the future of this podcast and all of its subsequent connections. So some of you know that in October, I um, put on this event that I called Dissonance. Um, we met in the basement of this bar. Uh, it was dark and it was dingy and it was atmospheric and I loved it. And I, with the help of so many loved ones, uh, so much family and friends, we put on this event called Dissonance, centered around the theme of the apocalypse. And what, what happened in it is that dissonance is this idea of getting people to come together from all different walks of life, all different ideologies, all different mediums of how they express themselves, and they come together and they give their, uh, how they see the theme of the night. So we all came together and we talked about the apocalypse and so moving forward this is something that we hope to do on a regular basis at the moment it's about every six months Um, I think our dream is to make it every three but so far um, because of time and other commitments and working so that we can have a life and live and pay our bills it looks like every six months is going to be what it um, is for the time being. Um, so that with that being said, we hope to have another dissonance maybe sometime in February, March, or April. I know that that is a big, wide gap, but that's where we're at. Um, but in the meantime, as we're planning, as we're working, as we're getting this thing created, I wanted to fill in the gaps of these events with this podcast. And so this podcast is going to be a little bit of a, of a smaller scale of what the events are in that I'll host them, but sometimes I'll do interviews, sometimes I'll talk on a subject, sometimes it'll be religious, sometimes it won't be, um, and it'll all be circling around your interaction, your messaging, your questions, so that you are being um, filled, you are being engaged, you are being intrigued. And we are, uh, we are doing the thing that drives our passion. So that is Dissonance. This is the Dissonance Podcast, episode two. And in this one, um, I wanted to share what I talked about in the first Dissonance to try to catch us all up so we are all up to date. In the coming weeks, I hope to maybe talk with some other people who helped in that first event so that it's almost as if, if you weren't there, you get the gist of what we talked about.
So, um, my talk that I gave was called The Apocalypse and the Man Behind the Curtain. And so we chose the idea of the apocalypse because when when we talk about the apocalypse, when I say the word apocalypse, you know, everyone kind of gets a different idea of what it is and what it looks like. Usually when people t- uh, begin to talk about the apocalypse, we get this idea of death and destruction and we see doom and gloom, this kind of fire and brimstone filled end of everything that we know and love. You know, typically we think of movies that star like The Rock or Nicolas Cage and they're standing on this like this edge and behind them is this smoking, smoldering city laid in ruins under an orange sky. Uh, and it's usually coming to, to a theater near you sometime this summer. But what if I were to tell you that the traditional thought of the apocalypse was actually something much deeper than that? That the classic view is actually something much different. Because a lot of people get their ideas of the apocalypse from the book of Revelation in in the Bible, which is super fair. There's a lot of horrific imagery in there. We see oppression and prejudice and evil and horror. But the book of Revelations is not the only piece of apocalyptic literature we have. You know, we also have uh, Trump's Twitter feed. But dude, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, the, the book of Revelations is not the only piece of apocalyptic literature we have. When, when the writing that we now call the book of Revelations was in circulation with the early church, uh, there was also a large number of other writings circulating around the church, and they all kind of fit into this genre that scholars call apocalyptic literature. And their point wasn't necessarily to talk about the end times, world-ending death and destruction, and things of that like. In fact, the word apocalypse doesn't even mean ending or judgment or anything like that. Apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means in uncovering or a revelation. The apocalypse is not about the end of the world. The apocalypse is about uncovering the truth that the world is trying to hide. So the point of apocalyptic literature was not to spew judgment from the heavens, but it was actually a hope-filled message to proclaim that the powers that be in the world would have their masks removed and we'd be able to see underneath them for what they truly were and that they would eventually be overthrown. So it was encouragement. Sometimes it was prophetic visions from hope-filled people writing to others who were very much under the harsh control of the powers that be, telling them that this big, oppressive, mighty, evil empire was not really all-powerful. A great example of this is if you've ever seen the movie The Wizard of Oz. 
that great, great classic apocalyptic movie. <laughs> when when Dorothy and, and her group finally arrives in the Emerald City, she meets this wonderful wizard of Oz, this all-powerful being who is mean and is surly and only offers to help her if she does something that benefits him. He claims that he is powerful enough to give each and every member the very thing that they desire most. A return home, a brain, a heart, courage. But it comes with a price. And so the gang goes out and accomplishes this impossible task. And they return to the Emerald City expecting their dreams to come true. Only for the Wizard of Oz to tell them that he wants to think more about if he should really ha- uh, help them. And this is when the apocalypse occurs. Because Dorothy says, Come back tomorrow, but I want to go home now. And the Tin Man says, You've had enough time to think. And Dorothy says, If you really were all-powerful, you'd keep your promises now. And that's when Toto, the little dog that has been following the gang around the entire movie, pulls back the curtain and the gang finds this little decrepit old white man behind the curtain who promptly tells them, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It is in this way that Toto becomes a symbol for God. Because so many people have made the critique of this movie that the Wizard of Oz is God. That he is this big, powerful head who's floating in the sky and who will only do what you, what you only give you what you want if you do something for him in return. But really, Toto is God. Toto is the one that reveals that these power structures are far weaker than they appear. And so just like that, the apocalypse has arrived in the land of Oz. The all-powerful, wonderful Wizard of Oz, this all-knowing and floating head proclaiming power and dominance was nothing more than a weak fraud hiding behind a curtain, who had no intention of ever giving Dorothy a trip home, the scarecrow a brain, the tin man a heart, or the lion his courage, simply because he couldn't. The curtain had been pulled back, the truth had been uncovered, and the apocalypse had come. They could never go back to the way that things were. The apocalypse is not about judgment. The apocalypse is not about the end of the world nearly as much as it is about uncovering the truth of something. The apocalypse, this uncovering, isn't the destruction of the world, but is in fact the catalyst that inspires the destruction of the world. The truth is revealed, and because of that, it all comes crumbling down. And that was the idea. 
The book of Revelation is so named Revelation because it's apocalyptic. If you've read the book, you know that it tells a story of these powerful beings who take control of the world and lord over us with fear and violence. The, the Antichrist, the beast, they sit above us for years, lording over us and forcing us to live by their ways and silence those who don't agree. It begins to look like all hope is lost. The good guys are living under the tyranny of evil supernatural beings. A giant floating head in the sky that claims to know all and be all powerful. And that is when the revelation comes. The divine comes back. The shining light and it pulls back the curtain and reveals nothing more than a decrepit old man who is claiming to be more powerful than he really is. And good and evil wage war and good prevails. So in this way, all apocalyptic literature has this in common. That whatever power structures are in place, whoever sits in the seat of power and claims that they know best, whoever wields power simply through confidence and showmanship and force and violence and an antiquated idea that this is just the way things are, are fooling themselves and fooling us because they will not last. Apocalyptic literature focuses on these big power structures, that every empire built on the back of slaves, every pharaoh, every king, every president, every dictator, whoever proclaims power through the oppression of others, every monument, every statue, every pyramid, every tower built to showcase the might and the majesty of these people and these power structures, all of them will fall, all of them will crumble, and in the dust and the debris, the force of good in the universe, the spark, the divine, God, whatever you want to call it, that remains. And alongside the divine are the people who fight for good. Those who don't bow when the powers that be says that this is just the way things are. So throughout history, we have seen multiple apocalyptic moments. We have seen the fall of empires, the Civil War, women's suffrage, the Civil Rights Movement, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too and Time's Up movements, these are all apocalyptic moments simply because we are seeing groups of people looking at the big and the powerful and shining a light on them, uncovering what lies beneath the surface for what lies deep within and showing that the great and the powerful are, re are really just weak and frail and they can be overcome. These apocalyptic moments show a group of people who are being told that this is just the way things are. And they stop and they ask themselves, why? And then they decide, no more. 
No more will they just accept things are, just that this is just the way things have to be. No more will they simply look the other way when people around them are being hurt or oppressed simply because it doesn't affect them. No more will they quake with fear at the rich and the mighty simply because they are rich and mighty. Because they know that all things can crumble and all things can fall when those who are working for the good of the world say no more. So this means that all of us have the potential to create apocalyptic moments, whether big or small. You know, maybe you work in a toxic environment. Maybe you work somewhere that doesn't follow the laws when it comes to workers' rights. Maybe you or someone you know is stuck in a toxic relationship. Maybe you're struggling with beliefs and ideals that just don't fit with where you're going in this world. Maybe you go to school at a place that routinely stereotypes, discriminates, and discredits people of, 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 a, of a groups of people for a multitude of reasons. You should know that you have the power to say no more. Even if it doesn't affect you, even if it doesn't involve you, you should know that you have the power to stand up and say no more. Because when people say that this is just the way things are, they're lying. Everything changes. Everything adapts. Everything evolves. Everything progresses. Nothing is ever just the way it is. We all have a voice in some capacity. We all have the ability to be on the side of history that chose to bring on the apocalypse and allow revelation and allow change and allow progress to bloom on this earth. But here's the thing. Here's the kicker. Here's where the other shoe drops. We cannot bring the apocalypse to this earth until we bring the apocalypse to our own hearts. Because far too often we focus on the destruction of things, quote-unquote, out there. We paint the destruction of the world. We, we see these institutions, these empires, these power structures fall. We see things crumble and, and, and get destroyed. But how often do we focus on the destruction of ourselves? Because if we're living in this apocalyptic mindset... In this apocalypse moment, we're fighting and we're pushing and we're striving for a better world. We're destroying this one to make way for a better one, a new one, in, in one sense, right? Are you with me? Letting what is here burn to the ground so that something better is put in its place. Working towards a utopia. We want to work towards a world where everything is perfect. There's complete justice and equality and love and freedom for everyone who is here on earth. And in this perfect world that we're trying to build, in our own minds, far too often, we want to fight for a world where all of our desires are met. 
We're trying to fight for a world where pain and loss and the unknown, these things that supposedly rob us of our pleasures, are destroyed. Our longings are met and we find ourselves finally, ultimately, fulfilled. So in a way, everything is destroyed in the world, in this apocalyptic world that we are trying to create. Everything is destroyed except for our desires. We're trying to to fight for a world where pain and loss and the unknown, these things that supposedly rob us of our pleasure, are destroyed. Our longings are met and we find this ultimate fulfillment. But, you know, in, in this way... Everything is destroyed. The the apocalypse comes. Everything is destroyed except our desires. So what if in our vision of the apocalypse, this vision of destruction and empires collapsing and the world ending, what if the problem with this vision is not that it goes too far, but it doesn't go far enough? What if as we seek to change the world, we also have to seek to change ourselves? What if serving the poor, fighting for justice, fighting for equality, bringing about this change and this unmasking of the evil in this world, what if that requires that we change? What if that requires that our desires change? What if we have to give up some of the ideal of perfection, of safety, of comfort? What if it means that we can't keep making simple purchases, puffing up corporations who, much like the Wizard of Oz, offer this completion, offer satisfaction, if we would simply keep buying their product? Because the truth of the matter is that no matter how much you buy, no matter how much you do, The all-powerful wizard is just a man behind a curtain. There's there's three commercials that I want to bring up as examples of how corporations love to pretend to be our allies while still adding fuel to the fire and keeping us stuck serving this, this machine. Um, Those of you who who have watched the YouTube talk I gave and who were there at Dissonance know that I originally brought up up two commercials, but since giving this talk, a whole new commercial has aired and it's been really famous and has gotten a lot of people talking and kind of talking about these concepts. And so I think it'd be really cool to bring this up. But so the first commercial is a 1971 commercial done by Coca-Cola. You know, it was really famous in the 70s, and it had this resurgence recently because it was used as a perfect way to close the series finale of the show Mad Men. Uh, Mad Men, which among other things, is a show about the American dream being a fool's errand of trying to stave off the apocalypse. But in the series finale, uh, and spoiler alerts, by the way, but if you haven't seen Mad Men by now, like, are you even going to? But in the series finale, 
we see Don Draper having this crisis. He is burnt out and he is confused and he's attending this conference with some young kind of hippies uh, on meditation and Zen. And he's with all these young people and all of them are seeking something so much deeper in life. And to an extent, so is Don. And he is, he's meditating and his eyes are closed and suddenly he opens his eyes and we're kind of led to believe that maybe he's finally reached Zen. You know, maybe he's figured out that everything he has been searching for isn't worth it. That advertising is feeding this beast of consumerism and capitalism. And he's finally found a way to check out from the cycle of pain and hurt and misery. And then we fade to black and we open back up to the, this, this famous Coke commercial, which shows a bunch of young people um, on a mountainside drinking Coke and singing about world peace. That, that peace and love are here and that the world can be saved if only people would buy a Coke. And it's this crushingly realistic and depressing ending because we realize that Don Draper hasn't figured it out, that Don Draper hasn't finally allowed the apocalypse to, to come, uncovering the curtain that is money and power and advertising. He hasn't allowed the apocalypse to spark his whole world to collapse. Instead, he's turned, he's, he's turned this thing back into... Uh, the desire of these naive kids he's meditating with. He's figured out that he can make more money, have more power, gain back the life that was slowly killing him if he creates a commercial that tricks kids into thinking they're helping the world by buying a Coke. You want world peace? You want to end racism and oppression? Well, just buy a Coke. And yet... We know that the world didn't really change in the 60s and 70s, you know? Why didn't peace and love work? Because corporations figured out that if they marketed, them, if they marketed themselves to these people fighting for change, so much like wolves in sheep's clothing, that nothing would really change because the corporations that gave money to the politicians, the corporations that affect what happens in Washington, didn't need to change because people were buying their product. So nothing actually changed. And then roughly a year ago, Pepsi tried to do the exact same thing just in a modern way, and it failed spectacularly. The commercial shows Kylie Jenner you know, leaving a model shoot to walk among these people in what is clearly a Black Lives Matter march. And as she's walking to the front line of this march, she sees a line of police officers and there's this kind of potential for violence and struggle. But instead, she offers the cop a Pepsi and everything is fine. So again, the message is clear that if you want world peace, if you want to end racism, if you want to stop police brutality and change the world, all you got to do is buy a Pepsi. However, because that, you know, because we're 40 years into the future, this Pepsi commercial failed spectacularly, you know, mainly because it depicts a, a Black Lives Matter march, but all the major players in the commercial are white. 
you know, most of the people of color are pushed to the sides as supporters of what Kylie Jenner is doing. And it was, you know, there were all these accusations of appropriation of black culture, which really hits home since Jenner and the Kardashians have long been accused of appropriating uh, black culture. But many people took offense that Pepsi was taking a very real struggle that people were going through and they were trivializing it by saying, you know, have you tried to give a, a cops a Pepsi? And then there was this third commercial that just happened, I think, within the last week of me recording this. Um, and it was by Gillette. And Gillette posted this commercial about toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement and talking about how, you know, their, catch, their classic catchphrase was the best a man can get. And this commercial was asking, is this the best a man can get? That is this the best that we can do as men? And it basically is a message of anti-bullying, anti-sexual harassment, anti-sexual assault, um, all these things that, that, that men do when they're being the worst of themselves, catcalling and all of this, that men are being men when they stand up to bullies, when they stand up to people who catcall, when they give space and allow um, <laughs> women to actually be independent and to thrive and to take charge and to lead when they don't be overbearing jerks. And so there's no, I have no problem with the message that it's trying to say, speak. And actually, I feel like this commercial did so much better than the Pepsi and the Coke commercial because nowhere does the message come up, do you want to change the world by Gillette? Gillette is simply saying, hey, men, we can do better. However, the point remains that the message to me seems tainted when you have this multi-billion dollar corporation who has long sold their product using toxic masculinity that suddenly in 2019 they got woke and decided, you know what, what if we sold that we're not sexist anymore? And so it's hard to hear these messages that I like from corporations because at the same time, there, there is this element of, hey, if people like what they're hearing, they'll attribute that to us. And so when they buy our razors, they'll be thinking, well, I'm helping the Me Too movement and I'm helping end toxic masculinity. So the point remains that three of the largest corporations in the world, you know, who have all been involved in lawsuits based on the abuse of workers' rights, accused of racism and sexism, are are all trying to tell you that they're on your side that somehow these three have attempted at making us think that they're joining in the apocalypse the movement the destruction of all these institutions in the world today so that if we actually want to usher in the apocalypse we have to escape the cycle and the idea that a product is going to help us usher it in that we have to purchase something in order to help uncover the atrocities in the world. The true apocalypse comes from this idea of real self-sacrifice, of choosing to not buy things that prop up businesses that aren't ethical, of choosing to support local ethical people and places and products it's about dying to seeing the world in the comfortable way we're used to 
and accepting the murky, the gray, the ugly truth that there are things about how this world works that need to be destroyed. That it's not about easy answers. It's not about shortcuts. It's not about following along because this is simply the way it works. It's not about feeding the beast or giving your sympathy in the form of tweets or texts or posts or updates of statuses, but about actually giving your time, your energy, and your heart. That to actually change the world, you have to get up and actually do something. So, if there is something about how this world works that you feel is unjust, if you're being told that this awful thing is just the way things are, I challenge you to stand up and say no more. You don't have to accept abuse. You don't have to accept oppression. You don't have to accept discrimination. You can stand up and say no more. And by doing so, you're accepting the apocalypse is something more than just a story to scare children. That it's something more than just doom and gloom. But that really the apocalypse is necessary. The apocalypse is good. And the apocalypse is here now. And it's happening and it's going to continue to happen. Cheers, everyone.